Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. The title of our lesson this morning, uh, this morning, this evening, is the gospel of the grace of God. And all I can say about that tonight, to start out with, I hope it's as good tonight as it was when I studied it this past week. What a tremendous, tremendous study on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not that I'm a good teacher, I don't mean that, but just the, the, the verses we're going to use tonight, uh, the thoughts we're going to share. And we'll be in Acts chapter 20 in just a moment, so you might want to turn there. And we'll pick it up in verse 22 in just a little while. But let me give you a little background what's going on. The Apostle Paul has finished up his third missionary journey. And he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And uh, a, a lot of times his missionary journey, especially the first one, he backtracked to each city on his way back. Uh, and he did some of it this time, but he decided for whatever reason, well, there's a reason, uh, he decided against stopping at Ephesus. Now, we know he wrote a letter to the Ephesians, letter to the Ephesians. He spent about three years there ministering, very close to those folks in that church. But at any rate, he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia because he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, if it were possible, for the festival of Pentecost. He'd already missed the Passover in Jerusalem, so he was really excited of the possibility of arriving on time for the festival of Pentecost. Now, let me stop here just for a moment. Why would that be important to Paul? Say it again. Amen. Now, he was a Christian. I must understand. And he didn't think you had to do that to be saved. Okay. But it was a vital part of his life. And, you know, he, he simply wanted to be there uh, for the, the Pentecost celebration. He had missed Passover. But also, he was carrying some gifts uh, that he had collected in his missionary journey to take back to the church at Jerusalem. And those gifts came from different churches in Asia as well as Greece. So anyway, the ship he was on, I should have had a map, but I didn't do it. I, I didn't look it up myself so I could see where I was talking about it a little bit. Uh, but the ship that Paul was on harbored at Miletus. It was a coastal city there in Asia. And Miletus was about 65 miles south of the city of Ephesus. And when he got there, uh, Paul sent some of the elders at Miletus to Ephesus and said, look, uh, I want you to go and bring some of the elders from Ephesus back so I can bid them farewell. Now, what a tremendous uh, passage this is, uh, because Paul had sense in his spirit. In fact, he tells them before he leaves, this will probably be the last time you'll see my face. And so, you know, it's, it's not easy to read without getting emotional because it's in a very emotional time in the Apostle Paul's life. I mean, he loved those folks very dearly, and he spent quite a bit of time with them. But nonetheless, he uh, he called for them to come, and, and Paul says, I want to say goodbye to you. I want to say goodbye to you. And so uh, we're going to find out in a moment. Paul's going to talk about testifying the gospel of the grace of God. And that was sort of the essence, if you will, of his farewell speech to the leaders of the church at Ephesus. Now, he reminded them in verses 18 through 21, he reminded them how he conducted himself while he was among them. And then he tells them about what's going to happen. He tells them, I'm on the way to Jerusalem. Now, of course, Paul doesn't know that. We know the whole story. Uh, Paul would go to Jerusalem but he would end up being carried a prisoner to the city of Rome. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 20. Somebody read verses 20 and through, I'm sorry, 22 through 23, please. Verse 22 and 23, Acts 20. What's Paul saying? Now remember, he's saying goodbye to the elders of the church at Ephesus. What did he say to them? He said, all I know for sure 
He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. But why was he going? He's bound in the Spirit. Now, I did some study on this, and the, uh, the Greek doesn't say, had the word the. So we're not sure whether Paul's speaking about his spirit or the Holy Spirit. We can't be dogmatic either way. A lot of theologians believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But either way, would you agree Paul is compelled to go to Jerusalem? And then he says, I'm not sure what's going to happen to me there. Now, by the way, I don't know how many years have gone by, quite a few now. But one of the first times after his salvation, Paul went back to Jerusalem. He stayed for a few days, and they took him down to the bus depot. And they bought him a one-way ticket. Meaning what? Don't come back. Now, you know they didn't have a bus, that bus depot, but you get the picture. Now, he's been back since then. He went back for the Acts 15 council. We know that. But now he says to them, I'm going. And I'm bound in the Spirit. And I don't know for sure everything's going to happen. All I know is every city I've been to so far, the Spirit of God has told me bonds, jail, and affliction wait for me. Now, I'm glad Pam not in here tonight. Cheryl, won't you tell her what I said? I can be a little hard-headed. Tell me this once. You know what? I'm not going. I'm not going to Jerusalem. So Paul realized, and by the way, you can read the story for yourself as it pans out. Several tried to warn him, Paul, don't go. So he knows where he's going. Doesn't know anything's going to happen, but he knows trouble waits for him. Serious trouble. Look at verse 24. Somebody read that, please. What's Paul's attitude? Say what? Positive. Yeah. Did he value his life more than he did sharing the gospel? No. Yeah. Paul said, I know what you're telling me. And I sent it to be true. But he said, none of these things. Can you imagine that? I got to tell you, folks, took me a bit on conviction. That's me. (laughs) None of these things bother me. None of it. Because Paul said, more than anything else, I want to finish my race with joy. And, of course, we know there are many times that Paul uses a metaphor of running a race, finish my course with joy. And he said also the ministry that God had given me. I want to finish that. But notice his ministry in the last part of verse 24. To testify the gospel of the grace of God. Think about that. So let me ask you, and what we read tonight so far, what was the most important thing in Paul's life? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now remember, back in Acts 9, and actually beginning in Acts 7, when we first read about him, if I remember correctly, he's trying to destroy the gospel, isn't he? He's trying to get rid of those who are of that way. But now it's the most important thing in his life. So Paul is very clear here. He's saying that wherever the providence of God might take me, whatever the circumstances might be when I get there, 
whether, whether or not I'm in chains or in freedom, Paul said, this is my mission. And this is my message. To testify of the gospel of grace of God. I guess this is a rhetorical question. You think Paul had his priorities and values in the right place? Yeah. And I got to tell you, folks, I think that this is a great principle for any believer of any age. Because the Lord of the harvest is still appointing people to share the gospel. Now, how many know the day you got saved, God could could have taken us all home, right? Why didn't he? We got work to do. We're to go out and tell others. We're simply beggars who found bread, and we're supposed to go tell others, well, we found that bread. And we found the bread of life. So Paul says, my goal is to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now, this is sort of, I think, a little bit subjective question. Why would the gospel, why do you think it might have been so important to Paul? Okay. Without a doubt. What did Paul, how did he spend the majority of his life up until Acts chapter 9? Doing what? Well, fighting against it, but even before that, he was trying to please God how? Doing the wrong thing, but he was trying to please God by doing whatever he could to earn a right standing with God. <clears throat> and there came a time in Paul's life he realized, I don't care how hard I worked, I don't care what I earned, learned or whatever, I could never earn right standing with God. And I, I don't know for sure, because we know the Spirit of God did it, but all of a sudden there was a light went off in his head. I don't have to pedal this bicycle. I don't have to push this car. All I need to do is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you agree with me tonight that the gospel is the fundamental of our faith? It's the bottom rung on the ladder. Not negating it, but we've got to start there. And I want you to realize, as long as we live, it doesn't matter how long you've been saved either, There will always be a continual need for this great fundamental of the faith. As long as this age lasts, the gospel of the grace of God has to be proclaimed. The hymn we we sing a lot in our Christmas time, go tell it on the mountain, tell it everywhere you go. Now the reason... There's such a great need for the gospel to be proclaimed. It's because of the natural state of the human heart. May I say the fallen state of the human heart. We don't like to admit this, but hear me well. The human heart tends to be legalistic. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? (laughs) How many times have you thought if something a little bit bad comes your way, you've asked yourself, what did I do wrong? Or how can I do better? Because the gospel, the, the basic error against the gospel, it has to contend with the chronic tendency we have as men and women, human beings, to rely on how well we perform. 
And I don't know that we ever get over that completely. Now, I can speak for myself as a pastor, you know. Um, I've been in close contact with Brother Jerry MacArthur this past few months and planning on praying with him. And I knew he had an appointment this past Sunday, and I t- texted him, and, and I said, Brother, I'll be praying for you, so I'm praying for you too. He said, don't just cluck on the nest. <laughs> and sometimes you feel like that when you're preaching, you know. But the problem is, norm that when you think you don't perform well enough. And there, I, I can't say the times through the years. I thought, man, that was a bummer. And somebody would come to me, maybe call me in the week, say, Pastor, I, I needed that. I needed that so bad. It's been a few years ago now, but I had a guy call me from Pennsylvania. Don't know the guy. And he heard it online. <laughs> and what happened was, and he was, he was he was driving through the area, and he stopped to call me here at the church. They'd let me know. And I had no idea. Had no idea. And we don't. But we're all guilty of trying to rely on our own performance. And I think one of the biggest enemies we have, enemies we have including myself, the biggest adversary to the truth of the gospel is our pride. Isn't it true? It's our pride. And our pride somehow convinces us to believe at least a little bit we can be our own Savior. If we pull hard enough we can, on our bootstrap, we can lift ourselves up. But is that true? Nah. We just can't do it. Now, by the way, don't think that's not heard of. That thought has given birth to a lot of heresies. A lot of heresies. And because of human tendency to be legalistic, and because of the falsehood that we can help ourselves and be our own Savior, the pure stream of God's truth that comes through human beings, is sometimes polluted. I know we're saved by grace, but... What's wrong with that statement? Oh, thank you. There's no but. We are saved by grace. You'll know the verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And these verses epitomizes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody read those for me, please. Now again, remember, Paul is writing, and by the way, he's writing to the same group he said farewell to. Okay? Back in Acts 20. And so... What does he tell them and tell us here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9? What's he tell us? Then how are we saved? Yeah, it's a gift of God. Even our faith is a gift of God. For by grace are you saved. (laughs) Now, it's a gift of God, but then he adds verse 9. What's verse 9 say again? Why do you think he put that? Why do you think he put that in there, Jason? If it was of works, if we did something good, what would we do about it? We'd brag about it. <laughs> Paul says you have no basis for boasting, no reason to brag. So let me say it again: the gospel of Jesus Christ must be the foundation of any. Christian ministry. Now, here's what's interesting. There's a tendency, even among Christians, that sometimes it's like the tendency of the world to shy away from that truth 
which is the very sum and the substance of the gospel. Now, this is sort of an unplanned pop quiz, uh, and we don't have the exact answer. Uh, does anybody, if you know or maybe want to take an educated guess, when did the Apostle John die approximately? Anybody know? Yeah, about A.D. 90. About A.D. 90. And uh, I think Polycarp, and correct me if I'm wrong, some of you who know church history, was one of his disciples. Is that correct? But anyway, uh, but you know what I found out from church history? And I'm assuming that John was probably one of the last apostles to die, as far as we know. Within 50 years of John's death, according to church history, the gospel of grace had almost stopped being preached. Now, I got to tell you, I didn't know that. That shocked me when I read that this week. 50 years after the death of the last apostle, the gospel of grace had almost stopped being preached. So what happened? And again, according to church history, instead of evangelizing, instead of following the Great Commission going to all the world and preach the gospel, the preachers of the second and third centuries, they began to philosophize. Philosophy. Think about that. What good is philosophy if it's not Bible-based? And they also started dealing with metaphysics. And so you had philosophy and metaphysics taking the place of the simplicity of the gospel. Now, after I think about that, maybe that shouldn't surprise me so much. Because even Paul, we mentioned this past week when he wrote to the Church of Colossae, when John wrote his epistles, he was dealing, they were dealing with people who fully had higher knowledge. They had better philosophy. And so they were, they were trying to quell it even then. But within 50 years after the death of the last apostle, it began to change. It began to change. They began to focus on philosophy, metaphysics, uh, it was an, and, and there wasn't much gospel preaching going on. But then, in the 4th century, along comes a man named Augustine. And Augustine began to faithfully and fearlessly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ again. And what's interesting, now think about this, is one man. And according to church history, and they give God the credit, his God empowering Augustine, said that more than half of Christendom was shaken. The message he preached moved the church in the right direction. And so basically... Because he was faithful to the gospel, according to church history, a heaven-sent revival began, and things began to change for the good. But the problem was, like a lot of revivals, what happens to them? They don't last. And if the churches would have gone on at that time and heeded his teaching, and hear me well, the popery would have never been born. You wouldn't have had Roman Catholicism today if they would have listened to his teaching. 
So they turn back to vain philosophy and science. And Paul told Timothy, falsely called. And then came the Dark Ages. And during the Dark Ages, for centuries, again, the gospel ceased to generally be preached. Now, there were feeble voices being raised here and there. But most of them were soon silenced by the Italian priests. And it really wasn't until the 15th century when the Reformation came. And, of course, God raised up Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, a devout Catholic, realized that all the penance he did, all the works he did, didn't bring him any closer to being right with God than when he started. And so Martin Luther taught in no uncertain terms that sinners are justified by faith and not by works. Now, by the way, Martin Luther was so adamant about that. And if my memory serves me correctly, he's the one who said this. He made a comment about the epistle, the letter James wrote, because James says, show me your faith by what? By your works. And so Martin Luther called it a strawy epistle. I mean, he didn't want to hear anything about works anymore. He'd spent his life trying to earn his way to God. Of course, after Luther, you had other teachers, John Calvin, others who began to teach even deeper the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they pushed the doctrine of grace to its logical conclusions. Charles Spurgeon said this about Luther. He said, Luther, as it were, undammed the stream of truth. By breaking down the barriers which had kept back its living waters as though in a great reservoir. But the stream was turbid and carried down with it much which ought not, I'm sorry, much which should have been left behind. Then others like Calvin came along and cast salt into the waters and purged them. So the stream began to flow pure and began to make souls glad and refresh them. And begin to quench the thirst of poor, lost sinners. How many are glad he quenched your thirst? Huh? For Calvin, the center of his preaching was the grace of God. For George Whitfield, the center of his preaching was the grace of God. And even in Whitfield's day, it produced a great revival. Folks, how many know there's something special about the gospel of the grace of God? Transforms life. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We know it's good news. Was Paul ashamed of the gospel? No. He was willing, in fact, he did. He gave his life for it. But simply stated, the gospel is the revelation of God's grace. This is a rhetorical question, but you know I'm going to answer it. Can I ask you, where would you be without grace? Where would we be? The gospel is a revelation of the grace of God. And it's this gospel, the good news, that you and I as Christians are called to share with the lost and dying world. And by the way, let me ask you a question. Do you have to be a preacher to share the gospel? No. No. It's for everyone. It's interesting, there are several different names ascribed to the gospel, but it's still the gospel. Number one, sometimes it's called the gospel of God. Romans 1, verse 1, anybody got that? Yeah. 
Okay, Paul said, I'm separated unto the gospel of God. Now, I think that makes sense. Who's the author of the gospel? God is. So, it's the gospel of God. In Romans 1.16, same chapter, Paul calls it the gospel of Christ. Anybody got that? What was Paul convinced of? When Paul preached the gospel, was he ever afraid it wouldn't work? No. It's the power of God. So it's the, it's the gospel of Christ because it's his theme. It's the gospel of God because he's the author of it. But Paul also called it the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6.15. Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And again, I can't be dogmatic, but I kind of believe that it's called the gospel of peace because it's the inner peace it brings to those who accept Jesus Christ, those who accept the gospel of God. Now, please understand. We are in a battle with the inner peace that Christ has already given us And the desire to produce that peace in the hearts of others. Now listen, folks. Would you agree God has done a wonderful thing for us through the gospel? He has brought peace to our lives. And we ought to have that battle going on in our lives between the two. That You know, we're not just satisfied to keep it ourselves. But that gospel might produce peace in the hearts of others. Of others. Now, again, going back to our text, we're not reading the whole thing, but it speaks of the gospel of the grace of God. It's the gospel of the grace of God because God is its divine source. It's his divine source. And please understand grace is a truth. That is exclusive to divine revelation. Let that sink in. How many know we would never know about grace unless God told us about it? It's exclusive to divine revelation. It's a concept to which man in his own unaided powers in his mind could never come up with. Who would ever think we could be saved by grace? Surely we've got to earn it. Surely we've got to work something out, do a part of it anyway. But God revealed to us divine grace. Now, here's what's interesting. From what I've read, we know it to be true, because anywhere in our world where the Bible has not gone, grace is not known. Grace is not known. Over and over again, our missionaries have found that when they translate the scriptures into the native tongues of the heathen, they were, they couldn't find a word in any way that corresponded to the Bible word for grace. It simply wasn't in their language. Why? Because the Bible wasn't there. It wasn't in the language. Now, by the way, how many know that grace is absent from all the great heathen religions? No grace there. Brahmanism, that's an ancient Indian religious tradition, there's no grace. Buddhism, there's no grace there. Muhammadism, there's no grace. Confucianism, there's no grace. Zoroastrianism, that's an old Italian, I'm from Iranian religion, there's no grace. And by the way, 
Even nature doesn't teach grace. If you break nature's laws, what's going to happen? You pay the penalty. We will pay the penalty. So what then is grace? Number one, I think it's evidently something very blessed and something very joyous. How many are blessed tonight by grace? It's brought joy to our lives. Now again, we began looking in Acts chapter 20, looking at the good news of the grace of God, so it's good news. But second of all, grace is opposite of the law. You have grace and you have law. Can you mix the two? No. You've got one or the other. So when he talked about the law and gospel, they are antithetical terms. They are opposing terms. John 1.17. Amen. And by the way, if you're blessed to have a word search program on your computer, a Bible word search, you can do it in about two minutes or less. But type in the word grace and do an Old Testament search. Now, anytime I do a word search, I can type in Old Testament search, New Testament search, a particular book, whatever. But type in the word grace and search for it in the Old Testament. Guess how many times it's found in the Old Testament? Say it again. Yeah, it's not there. None. Not one time. Never found in the Old Testament. So what, what are the contrasts between the gospel or grace and the law? First of all, all the law does is show us what's in us. And what's in us? Sin. Now, grace shows us what's in God. And what's in God? Mercy. Ooh, isn't that good? The law tells us what man must do for God. Grace, the gospel, tells us what Christ has done for us. What a contrast. The law demands righteousness from us. Oh, that's good. You know what grace does? It brings his righteousness to us. What I couldn't do, it brings to me. The law brought out God to men, but grace brings in men to God. The law sentenced man, a living man, to death But grace gave a dead man life. Paul said, you were once dead in your sin and trespasses. But he hath quickened us. The law never had a missionary. The gospel, Jesus said, is to be preached to every creature. The law makes known the will of God. But grace reveals the heart of God. (laughs) Folks, this is good. I don't care who you are. I'm thinking about the time when they brought the woman caught in adultery. Remember that story? I know you do. What did the law say? She should should happen to her. Yeah, she needs to die. What did Jesus say? Yeah. Oh, I can't help but be glad for grace. What a contrast between the two. So not only is it the opposite of the law, grace then is also the very opposite of justice. Now remember, justice shows no favor. Justice shows no mercy. And grace is the reverse of this. Now, let me stop here for a moment because I want to make sure we understand 
Does that mean God doesn't care about sin? No. Jesus took that penalty for us, okay? He paid the price. So God's justice was poured out on Christ, and those who receive Christ as their Savior don't have to face that justice. Because justice demands we die for our sins. So justice, without a doubt, never shows favor. It never knows mercy. But grace has both of them. Justice says everyone should receive what he's earned. Whew, i got to catch myself every once in a while. Make sure I don't ask this. Don't pray this. Lord, give me what I deserve. Huh? That'd be a bad thing to get, wouldn't it, really? Sure, for me, for anyone. But justice requires that we receive our due. Grace gives us what we are not entitled to. Thank God for grace. Pure love, pure charity. And the bottom line is, now hear me well, grace is something for nothing. Is that good or what? Something for nothing. So the gospel is nothing less than a revelation of this wondrous grace of God. The gospel tells us what Jesus Christ has done for sinners, what we could not do for ourselves, and the gospel satisfied the demands of the law. Satisfied it. Jesus Christ came to our world, the God-man. We looked, looked at it Sunday in our Sunday school, 100% God, 100% man, without a doubt. And he came, and he completely and perfectly met all the demands of God's holiness. And because he has met those demands, he can righteously receive any and every sinner who comes to him. Somebody say, praise the Lord. He met the requirements. And here's the good thing. The gospel reminds us <clears throat> that Christ didn't die for good people. He didn't die for people who never did anything very bad. But the gospel says it's for the lost and godless sinners who never did anything good. Jesus said there is what? None good. No, not one. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Thank you, Phyllis. So who is God, who is Christ able to save? <coughs> What's that verse tell us? Everyone. And I like what it says, and I should have done a word, but I didn't do it. I confess that. Save them to the uttermost. Completely. Because he always living. He's always making intercession for us. So what the gospel does, it's done it for us, and does it for all sinners. It reveals to every sinner for us to accept a Savior who is all-sufficient. A Savior who's able to save to the uttermost all or anyone who will come to God by Him. By the way, how many ways are there to heaven? Just one. One way to God, Jesus Christ. Another thing about the gospel, it's a proclamation of the grace of God. It's a proclamation of the grace of God. Now, the word gospel, as it's used in the New Testament, it's only used there, by the way, we... We said that earlier. 
It's, it's really uh, a technical term, and it's used two different ways. It's used in a, uh, in a narrow sense, and it's used in a wider sense. In the narrower sense, it refers uh, simply to sharing and proclaiming the glorious fact that the grace of God provided a Savior. That's the narrow thing. A Savior for who? For anyone. For every sinner who feels the need can come by faith and receive Jesus Christ. That's the narrow view of the gospel. But also in a wider sense, the gospel really comprehends the whole revelation that God made of himself in and through Jesus Christ. And in this sense, the gospel would include the entire New Testament. Now, now don't miss that. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses. Thank you, Dan. Now, here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins to say, look, I'm declaring this gospel I've already preached to you. You've received it, and you're saved by this gospel. But then in verse 3 and 4, he tells us exactly what the gospel is. So what, according to verse 3 and 4, what is the gospel? Three parts. Number one in verse 3, what happened? Jesus died. Got that? Number two, verse four, he was buried. Number three, verse four, he rose again. So the gospel in its narrowest form is simply the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ plus what? Nothing. That's it. Now, if, if you do, if you don't if you didn't realize that, if you're writing your Bible, I'd, I'd underline that. Okay, make sure you know it's the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, I must tell you, uh, every once in a while, when I see a name on the church, I have to laugh. Especially when I come to a full gospel or a four square. And the full gospel are usually four square churches. Meaning there's four tenements of the gospel. But how many of the Bible say there is? Three. Yes, three. That's in the narrow sense. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, we have a definition. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we have it in a broader sense. We read it earlier. Let's read it again. Romans 1, 1. Okay. Thank you, Phyllis. What chapter in the book of Romans now? Not in the book of Acts, not in the book of 2 Corinthians. What chapter in the book of Romans, in the book of Romans, precedes chapter 1? None. So Paul's starting out. And he says, I'm a servant, called to be an apostle, separate unto the gospel of God. And then Paul's going to spend the next 11 chapters broadening the influence of the gospel. So he begins in verse 1, and Paul says, I'm going to include this whole doctrine, doctrinal exposition. Here's what the gospel is all about. Here's how it changes life. Here's how, to, how it affects the way we live. And so that's why we, we stand on the fact that the gospel is the, is the proclamation of the grace of God. And we have to realize the gospel affirms for us. Now, don't miss this. It affirms that grace is our only hope. Absolutely our only hope. And unless we're saved by grace, what's the second option? 
there is none. He said, well, wait a minute, preacher. How, how can you say that? Because Paul spent the entire chapter 4 of Romans showing that salvation is, is, is apart from the law. It's grace. It's the gospel alone. So what is the gospel? The gospel, the, the grace, we'll use the word interchangeably there. Grace is God's provision. Now hear me well. It is God's provision for those who are so corrupt they cannot change their own nature. For those who are so adverse to God they can't even turn to Him. For those who are so blind they can't see Him. For those who are so deaf they can't even hear them. And the gospel is for those who are so dead in sin that only God can raise them up again. In short, the gospel is for me and you. It's for the whole world. So, and we're going to have to quit here. Grace strongly implies my case was desperate. The sinner's case is desperate, but also at the same time strongly implies that our God is merciful. He is merciful. And the gospel of grace is for sinners in whom there is no way else to help. How many are glad for the gospel of God? No wonder Paul says, I will finish my course with joy. Amen and amen. Let's stop there for tonight, okay?